Hey there, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Thriving Lawyers Podcast. Uh, my name is Chris Osborne, and I am one of the hosts of podcasts. Uh, my colleague and co-conspirator, Michael Kahn, is not with us for this particular episode, but he will be back, uh, you can be sure, with a, with a great, interesting interview sometime coming up. Uh, today is my privilege to have uh, a guest I'm super excited about. Um, he is a lawyer who practices in Durham, North Carolina, named Coleman Cowan. And some of you may already be familiar with him or know him. He's practiced law for a while, but he's he's also had a, a, a few different uh, turns and twists in his career uh, when he wasn't practicing law. And, and he's going to talk with us some about that today. Uh, and we're excited about the kinds of things uh, that it, he might be able to shed some light on from from having uh, been in the law, outside the law, and then back inside the law again. Uh, so welcome, Coleman. Coleman, just uh, say a bit about yourself and kind of your family and where you practice and what you do, and then we'll kind of get into the interview. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. Um, as you said, I'm a trial lawyer, uh, James Cotton Farron. Uh, I practice in Durham and in Raleigh. Um, my wife, Angie, and my 11-year-old uh, son, Julian, we live in Raleigh. Been back here for uh, about three and a half years after um, a little bit of adventure in New York City that I think we're going to talk about today. But uh, glad to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I'm excited to have you on. And this is a special episode, especially uh, because Coleman and I actually knew each other from about, I think it was second grade. Uh, I moved to Greensboro. I had lived in Charlotte uh, and my dad got a job with Burlington Industries that took us up to this crazy town of Greensboro that I had not really even heard of or been to before. And we had the good fortune to move in across the street from Coleman and his family. Uh, this would have been 1977, I believe, right around in there. Uh, and we ended up, uh, you know, across the street, neighbors, friends, playing soccer together. Coleman went on to an illustrious soccer career. I went on to South Georgia where nobody really understood soccer or knew what it was, um, but but did get to play some down there. And then we just uh, recently, we, we'd run into each other over the years, every now and then, uh, we were both at Chapel Hill around the same time, but kind of running different circles. And then we recently reconnected uh, through some work we'll talk about with an NCBA committee called the Professional Vitality Committee. Uh, and that, that's sort of one of the, the things we saw. We had some similar purposes and interests, and it's been fun to reconnect and, and kind of you know see where life has taken us. Uh, and particularly since we both care about uh, this idea of thriving, we're uh, folks who have, have you know, had had different kinds of influences and interests uh, that we've managed to figure out something to uh, do with those uh, either in law or out of law. Uh, and so we hope this will be a fun conversation. I guess I want to start, Coleman. Um, uh, you know, what was uh, my recollection of, you know, uh, I remember, you know, I spent a lot of time, I think, over at your, at your house. In fact, I was remembering recently, this is an, an odd non sequitur, I may have to edit this out, but had an occasion recently to talk with somebody about the Dukes of Hazard TV show. And I remember where I was when I saw my first Dukes of Hazard commercial for that show. I was in your living room, actually. And I saw this commercial with the General Lee jump and they're like, oh, the Dukes of Hazard. And I'm like, that looks so cool. I want to watch that. My parents were like, oh, I don't know about that. That's kind of you know grown up. But I, I remember exactly seeing that, that it was so compelling you know, to a seven-year-old kid. Like, wow. Um, but uh, your, your dad was a well-known lawyer. Uh, Don Cowan uh, had, and, and just a great, a giant of a man, really, uh, as I came back into North Carolina many years later and started practicing. Just so many people had so much respect for him. 
uh, both for his career as a litigation attorney. I know he's with uh, Smith Helms and Helms Mullis through all those iterations, but also, and I think Ellison Winters may be late in his career, but he was also famous for having um, uh, worked on some uh, death penalty cases um, on a pro bono basis and just a giant of a man. Tell us just a little bit about kind of, I know he, you lost him not too long ago, but just what was that like having a dad who was a lawyer? Did it inspire you? Um, did you want to be a lawyer or did you, some people like say, no, I don't want to do what dad does, but what was that like for you? And, and uh, what's it been like for you to practice, you know, now that he's, he's not there? The short answer to those questions is yes and no. Um, it's, <laughs> Uh, it's kind of interesting how how all that worked out. Um, loved my dad to death, respected him. He was a fantastic dad. And you know, one of the things that I remember most vividly about him and that I try to uh, recreate myself now that I'm a dad is that no matter how busy he got uh, with his practice, trying cases all across the state and then all across the country, he was always there at every soccer practice, every soccer game, every once I got into band and was doing other things, he was always there. And as a kid, as a teenager, I didn't necessarily understand or I didn't really appreciate that as much as I do now. But um, sure, how lucky I was to grow up with it. You now like know, that. I guess, how hard that was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Hey, you now know how frankly. hard that was. That was not just easy. Right. Yeah. But uh, to answer your yeah. question, uh, as I was growing up and I think through you know, being a kid, a teenager, really, probably until I was 22 years old, the last thing I wanted to be was a lawyer. Uh, and it's because <laughs> I didn't understand, frankly, in hindsight, I, I didn't understand what what being a lawyer was. I, I saw my dad put on a suit, go to work. I knew he sat at a desk in an office and worked in an office building that I saw a lot on the weekends when I would go in with him when he was working. And that's what I thought it was. And you know, I thought that's the last thing I want to do is sit at a desk in an office, in an office tower, day in and day out, week in and week out. Uh, but once I b became hey. aware of what he actually did, that it wasn't sitting at a desk, that it was trying cases, that it was helping people, it was working on these pro bono death row cases, uh, helping people that needed help. Once I understood those things, then that's when I realized, oh, this is something that I'm interested in and I do want to see if I can do this. So it, it went from being the last thing that I wanted to do to the only thing that I wanted to do. And it was just getting an understanding of what it was and what my dad actually did and understanding him as a professional and somebody other than this is the wonderful person that is my dad. Yeah. You kind of had to have, I guess, a more developed frontal lobe, you know, uh, it's been shocking to me to learn how late it, you know, the brain actually matures, but, uh, we have to actually have that awareness and desire sort of to understand the adult world, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, but as I, I think we'll talk about there, there were still some remnants of that, uh, me wanting to do some other things that, where I realized we're always lurking in the back of my mind that uh, were brought to the front of my mind by a couple of experiences that I had. Yeah. But, uh, and I know we'll talk about that. Certainly. Well, t and so w before law made the list and became the thing that you did want to do, um, what else was on the list? What else when you, you know, finished Chapel Hill in 92, same year I did, what did you look at doing? what did you think about doing? What was, you know, or did you, and did you go straight to law school? I can't remember. Did you go straight through or did you uh, have a little time in between? I, did. I, 
I went straight through to law school, and um, I'll I'll tell you what I, I tell a lot of people. Little known fact about me is that I started college as a music major. Um, I okay. played guitar, uh, learned how to play piano, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, that changed uh, midway through college when my music professor said. In order to do this, this is all you can do. You have to immerse yourself in this and ignore everything else. I was ready to immerse myself. I wasn't ready to ignore everything else. And then I just started yeah. exploring other things. And that's when uh, I, I think fortunately for me, I became more curious about what my dad did and started having conversations with him uh, about his practice, about his cases and what it what he actually did beyond just sitting at a desk in an office. Sure. So you went to Wake Forest. Um, and I remember, I think I knew some people either that knew you there. And we, that's when we started to kind of reconnect. I, I have an image of actually, maybe it was bar prep. Like we were, there was a bar prep recording or something. There was a Wake Forest professor. I'm like, that's Coleman on there or something. But um, so how did you decide what kind of law you wanted to practice then coming out? And, and what'd you do? Well, it was... <laughs> part of the way that I grew up in my conversations with my dad. And I guess part of my just being a little bit naive when I thought about being a lawyer, I thought about what do lawyers do? Well, they try cases. Uh, you know, obviously there, you, there are so many things you can do with a law degree beyond that, but that's what I knew. And I knew that from my dad. And so when I decided to go to law school, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And as I uh, started taking classes, I just gravitated towards the trial advocacy classes, the evidence classes, the civil procedure, criminal procedure. And that's that's what I enjoyed. And that's what I thrived in doing. And, you know, again, that's what I thought lawyers did. So that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did when I got out of law school. Um, clerked for a judge for a year, was fortunate to have that experience uh, in the Middle District of North Carolina, clerking for a wonderful judge, Judge Tilly. Uh, and then moved into um, a, a trial practice. Okay. And who'd you start with? Who were you uh, working with? Uh, what firm? So I started with what was then Womble, Carlisle, Sandridge, and Rice uh, in Raleigh. They're now okay. through a couple of mergers, I think, Womble, Bond, Dickinson. Um, but started with That's this right. big, prestigious uh, Southeastern regional uh, firm. Um and that's what I uh, came to know and uh, learned how to bill hours and bill my time and um, keep up with my cases and manage cases. Um, I, I learned that, uh, well, I realized I wasn't getting the trial experience that I thought that I would get. And you know, I talked right. to my dad and he would tell me stories about um, picking up a file Monday morning. You know, this is in the late 70s, early 80s. And picking up two files and walking to the courthouse with uh, another lawyer in his firm. And they would say, which one do you want? Well, I'll take this one. You take the other one. And they sit down, read the file and go pick a jury. And he's like, my God, I can't imagine Crazy. doing that today. Uh, but that's no. what they were doing. And they had fun doing it and got a lot of really good trial experience. And one of the things that I learned early on when I started practicing law was that, man, that's that's not the way things are done today. You're, you're not trying cases. Right. Very few cases are being tried. More is at stake. And I realized early on that what I need to do is I basically forced a lot of my cases to go to trial because I realized I wasn't getting that trial experience. And within my practice yeah. group in the first couple of years, 
think I, I tried a handful of cases and I was one of the only lawyers in my group that was actually going to trial just because the cases weren't going to trial. Um, and yeah, I, I became more interested in trying cases than what I realized my practice could have been hand, headed towards. And that is case management. Uh, so I, yeah, after about four years uh, of practicing at Womble Carlisle, uh, I got an opportunity to switch sides from the defense to uh, go to a plaintiff's firm, uh, Martin and Jones in Raleigh and try cases, which uh, was a wonderful experience. I mean, when I started at Womble Carlisle, I was had a great job with a great firm, very stable, secure. I was doing well. And I thought this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Uh, then an opportunity yeah. came yeah. along that made me sort of look at other things and realize, oh, well, maybe I will do something different. And you know, frankly, when I went to Martin and Jones, I was with a good firm, working with good lawyers, trying good cases, stable job, good career. Um, and there were parts of it that I enjoyed. And uh, I thought this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And then, you know, as you know, right. and as we'll talk about, a couple things happened that made me look at some other things and pursue some other things. Yeah. And, and I want to just underscore first a, a couple things. One, just you're hitting on, you know, uh, the difference between a trial lawyer versus kind of a litigator or a litigation manager. Uh, I don't think I came out of law school with as much of an appreciation for that either. Um, you kind of thought it's trial work, it's litigation is all setting up trial work, but you didn't, you know, there's no way to know that 90 plus percent of cases actually settle um, it was, it was kind of eye opening to me. I actually started with an insurance defense practice, uh, that I'd found in Charlotte, kind of a smaller firm. And I was, I wasn't quite as bad as, you know, here, take this file, go try it tomorrow. But I did have a lot of, a, a, you know, a pretty decent caseload. And I, I was trying cases in district court and superior court, you know, as a really young lawyer, I look back now and think, oh my gosh, who let me do that? Uh, but it's definitely, I, 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 I think I interned, I actually, I spent a summer, uh, in the Charlotte office of Womble and, uh, and got a taste of sort of what, you know, litigation on that scale is like, and I still have friends who are there in the Charlotte office that I, I really like a lot, uh, and a lot of friends in the larger firms. And I know for me, um, just kind of being one of you know, five, six lawyers on a team or, you know, some kind of big, you know, uh, it, it's important, good litigation, uh, and, and yet it's not the same as kind of being in charge of managing the case and getting it start to finish. Um, but so you have alluded to though, I, I know from some writing you've done, uh, I think that's where you came back kind of my, on my radar. Uh, somebody had heard about a particular incident that happened to you. And I can't remember if it was while you were clerking or after, but talk about kind of a, a very, uh, there was a formative incident that sort of, uh, impacted, uh, your, your, your life and your job satisfaction kind of set the stage of, you know, which of those career stops you were at and how that happened and sort of what the, what the impact of that was on, on your career decisions. Sure. So this was, um, this was 1999, February 24th, 1999. Um, I had been practicing, I'd been out of law school for four years and had been in private practice for, uh, for three of those years after my clerkship, um, and a couple things happened. Uh, I, I, this event, uh, I, I walked into a deposition and I remember sitting in the parking lot before going into this doctor's deposition and I'd just come to a realization that, uh, 
all this hard work that I was putting in um, that I thought was going to get me ahead and reduce the stress that I had that was just an inherent part of my practice. And I know this is nothing unique to me, um, but I, I thought I'd, I'd come to realize that no matter how hard I work, that work isn't going away and that stress isn't going away. Hard work just meant that there would be more work waiting for me. And I was I'd to do come to the, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd come to the realization that there's I'm always going to be climbing that mountain. I'm never going to get over it. Uh, and so I go right. into this deposition. We take the doctor's deposition. And afterwards, I'm uh, speaking with the other attorney in the parking lot uh, of the of this doctor's office in Durham on Roxborough Road. It's a little bit after seven o'clock uh, in the middle of the week in February. So it's dark. And um Basically, what happens is a kid comes up on a bike with a gun and mugs us um, and he doesn't really mug, mug us before he starts shooting us. Um, he shot the other lawyer through Jeez. the abdomen. He shot me uh, through my arm and just an incredible story. And it's obviously it's not good that this happened, but it's wonderful the way things worked out. Uh, the bullet that went through my arm uh, just shattered my arm, but it went into this huge file folder that I was carrying. You know, at the time, carrying paper copies of paper exhibits and being a young lawyer, I had the whole case with me. And uh, so the bullet yeah. goes through my arm into the folder, fortunately stops. It's a, as I later learn, a hollow point bullet. So it expands as it goes through everything. Oh, my gosh. And so it stops before it gets to my hip, which allows me to run away, uh, which, as I learned later, probably not only saved my life, but saved the other lawyer's life because the young kid with the gun uh, basically emptied his clip uh, trying to hit me again. Uh, fortunately, oh he my didn't. Gosh. Uh, left the other lawyer there, uh, probably thought he was dead as, as I did. Uh, he wasn't. Um, I spent, uh, once I made it to the hospital, I was there for four nights. The other lawyer was there for seven. Uh, he is alive and well and practicing in North Carolina, doing well, um, as I am Gosh. alive and well and practicing in North Carolina as well. Um, but well, Coleman, I had, I had not heard the part of that story about the file folder. That is sort of just, that is hitting my head all different kinds of ways. I'm thinking, you know, having carried those binders around, like good thing that we didn't have, you didn't have a rolly case, you know, and it wasn't down by your side. I'm also thinking, man, that's a great uh, advertisement for um, not going paperless, I suppose, uh, saved by the paper in that case. Um, but wow. The red well is being bulletproof, but um, yeah. that's, that's what saved me and, um, and frankly saved Ooh. the other lawyer too, I think. Wow. So, so, and you were already kind of having this, I don't know if I like this sort of hamster wheel sort of feeling uh, of, you know, where am I, where is this going? How is this end? Is it more of this? And I'm not sure I'm good with that. What, you know, what was rehab like from that? What was it like to have that kind of interruption to your young developing career? Um, you know, the, the immediate sort of emotion or sensation that I went through after that was, uh, was fear. Um, I'd been a, a victim and, you know, I'm always consider myself and do consider myself a pretty strong and resilient person. Yeah. Uh, but I, I remember in the months after that, um, being very fearful, being fearful that this guy was still out there. My name was in the paper 
you can find where I am. And I, I, I was fearful even once I got back into practice, traveling, being in crowds around, among like large, large number of people. Oh, yeah. And because I, I thought to myself, this happened. It's kind of silly to think about it this way. But the way I thought about it was this happened because I saw a little kid roll up to us on a bike and I wasn't paying attention to where his hands were. I wasn't thinking about, well, this is what he could do. And for a number of years, yeah. and you know, it's been you know, over 20 years, I still do this to a certain extent when I'm on the street. I'm watching where people's hands are um, just because you don't know. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the immediate sort of sensation and emotion that I went through w w was fear and sort of dealing with being in crowds and around people that you don't know and you don't know what they're going to do and anybody can do anything. And I, I worked myself yeah. through that um, and got back into my practice uh, and all that same stress was still there and all that same work was still there. Um, and it, it it made me realize it, it sounds kind of corny, but you know it made me realize the reality of the cliche that tomorrow might not come, um, and so it became yeah. very important to me to do things right today uh, and not put things yeah. off. Um, and I, I think yeah. those those became the seeds for what eventually led me to. Um, to leave my law practice and pursue something completely different that I had no background in that I thought would just be an exciting adventure. And thank God it turned out that it was. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. So the, the shooting though happened while you were still at Womble. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And so then you did make a career change after that, or at least a, a professional change um, to go and do trial work at Martin and Jones so how long were you there? Um, and, and did you think at some point that, you know, shifting sides and getting more towards the courtroom was going to, you know, make things better enough, sustainable enough? Um, or was, was this, you know, was it already kind of nagging at you that you might need to do completely something different? How did that process, I guess, play out? worked out is, is this experience, I think, turned me on to the idea that I don't necessarily have to be on this track. You know, I've always thought yeah. this is the firm I'm going to be with for the rest of my career. And it, this experience made me realize, to, you know, just forced me to open my eyes to different experiences. So yeah. that made me open when uh, to, to this opportunity that presented itself to uh, change sides from the defense to uh, the plaintiff side. That was a good move. Uh, my, yeah. I, I was working with good lawyers, trying good cases, and I was I was in court um, and getting good results and and doing good things for my clients and learning a lot along the way. So it was a great experience. It was a good change. But what I realized over a number of years is this this thing was growing inside me, uh, and I didn't know what it was at the time, but. It, it, it kind of came back to this realization that, you know, tomorrow not, might not come. So let's get today right. And if you, know, you have this idea of wouldn't it be great to do this or exciting to do this? Well, why why put it off? Why, why think, you know, one day this might be something fun to do uh, or exciting to do? Let's do it now. And so I had this idea. And what I realized was this dream to become a writer and become a journalist. And what I, what I realized was that was grounded in just a need for more adventure in my life. Um, I wasn't married at the time. 
Um, I, okay. I didn't have a lot. I didn't have huge law school debt. Um, and I was at a point in my life where I could do something like this. And uh, that really the, deci- the decision came down to me realizing I didn't want to be whatever, 50, 60 years old, 70, looking back on my life and my career and think, I wish I had done this. I wish I had tried this when it's too yeah. late. And so I was in my mid thirties and I decided, you know what, I can do this now and I might fail spectacularly, but I want to know how this turns out. Uh, so with, so what did it no, look like? What, 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 what did you actually practically do then? I, I told, uh, I, I told my partners, Martin Jones, that I was leaving and the question was, well, where are you going? What, what firm poached you? And I said, nobody. I did. I'm, I'm leaving to, uh, to go become a journalist. And uh, jaws dropped and uh, people told me I was crazy, making a foolish decision, as did lots of my friends. Um, you know, but the one person, one person who didn't say that, who didn't react that way uh, was my dad. Um, he wow. was as excited about this this change as, as I was. And th- this wasn't like I was leaving something, uh, going into a, a new opportunity that had presented itself. It was, I just decided I wanted more adventure. And the way to do that uh, was to become a journalist. And I had yeah. no background, no connections, uh, no resources. I, I just, I, I had a dream. And I decided that this is something I want and need to pursue and need to do it now. And what had you, um, when you, you st- talked about starting as a music major, what had you changed your major to uh, before going to law school? I'd become an economics major. Okay. Uh, so it, was, econ- it wasn't journalism. <laughs> you know, it wasn't journalism. And you know, Carolina has a uh, fantastic journalism school. Yeah. But no, I, I hadn't even written for you know my student paper in, in high school or junior high. I'd, <laughs> I'd done nothing. I had this dream that I wanted to be Tom Wolf. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to write for Rolling Stone. And then I wanted to write nonfiction. And then I wanted to write fiction. I, I had it all oh, laid wow. out. Yes. And I had a dream. And and how so how did the dream actually start when, when you had to, you know, the no and I'm moving on was one thing. Where did you end up? And what was that like? I started out, uh, I, I talked my way into a, a, a very entry-level position at Business Week magazine in their Atlanta bureau. And so I tell people I went from you know, trying cases, uh, handing out seven-figure checks to, to my clients, to working for $9 an hour, setting up the fax machine, making coffee, and listening to the bureau chief talk about things like Burger King stock and Circuit City. Uh, and it, it was just a real, it was a real world realization about like, and forced me to confront, do I really want to do this? Now, fortunately yeah. for me, while this was happening, uh, they also gave me a little bit of leeway to write some stories. And uh, this was 2005, and they sent me to New Orleans uh, right after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and I, I remember being there, and I rem- remember being in the Lower Ninth Ward, and I was doing a story on the school system and how uh, they were reconstructing and rebuilding the school system after uh, Katrina had come through and just decimated 
the whole city and the school system. And I remember walking around the, the lower ninth ward and walking in and out of these schools and how incredible it was to be there then and think, this is my job. Somebody's paying me to be here, to do this, to have this experience and write about this. And yeah. uh, that was just a fantastic realization. And that's what told me that I was I was doing something right. And this crazy decision that everybody said was foolish maybe wasn't actually that foolish. Um, that led me to. Well, and, that, uh, and that's a. a- before you go on, let me say, let me just underscore. I, I love that because it's one of the things that that in our in my workshops I like to talk about with lawyers is it's okay and in fact it's a good thing to have that sort of passion connection, to have that sort of belief that your work is meaningful. Um, and I think it, it can be too easy for us as lawyers to sometimes settle for not having that. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, it pays the bills, or I'm good at it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily spark, you know, it doesn't connect with us on a deeper level. I know I felt that some in my first job doing insurance defense and trying cases got to where I could depose a medical expert or a chiropractor in my sleep. And I was like, okay, but is this it? Is this kind of all I'm going to do with my time? Um, and, and, and there's something to be said for you got into a place where you, you felt the meaning the, the, the meaning and the bigger picture, but also the meaning for you of it. It was, it was soul nourishing almost is the word I would use, um, which is, is powerful, I would say. Um, and, and, and can, the thing that, that I think is important for our listeners is if, if you have that soul nourishing and that sense of meaning, you can endure some pretty crappy external circumstances, you know, getting paid nine bucks an hour and, and, you know, being the grunt isn't that bad if you're getting these, you know, intangible benefits in a way. I think that's exactly right. And I, I had a certain element of, of that, you know, it, is this it? Um, and, you know, it, I had that experience in New Orleans and I had many experiences like that once I got to 60 minutes all over the world that, you know, this, this is exciting and I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. And it was finding, um, finding that inspiration and that feeling, um, which, I've, I've fortunately been able to find now that I've been back, but that was missing before I left. And a lot of what I experienced and what I learned when I left has helped me now that I've come back. Well, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of make a bookmark uh, pause here because we're almost at 30 minutes. My guess is this is where we'll, we'll end uh, episode one because this is going to be uh, definitely a two-parter uh, because we've got so much more good stuff uh, to talk about. So for the sake of our editing folks, um, We'll, we'll wrap uh, part one here and uh, tune in next week to hear part two of my interview with Coleman Cowan, where you hear more of the adventure and also more of uh, what happened that brought him back to practicing law uh, with us down here in North Carolina again. So we'll uh, pick it back up next week. If I could slate it, I would. <laughs> uh, Chris, while we're yeah. doing this, um, one of my ear pods is losing battery. So I'm going to switch and hope that doesn't create an audio issue. No worries. Perfect timing. All right. You got a backup set. You have a backup set. Is that a different set of your pods? Um,